0: everyone. Welcome to the Charwak podcast. This is your host Kushal Mehra. Uh, my guest today is Neer Eyal. Nir is a writer, consultant, and he teaches about the intersection of psychology, technology, and business. He previously taught as a lecturer in marketing at the Stanford Graduate School of Business uh, and the Hassel Plattner Institute of Design at Stanford. He co-founded and sold technology companies since 2003, a couple of technology companies since 2003, and was dubbed by the MIT Technology Preview, Review as the prophet of habit-forming technology. He's the author of two best-selling books, uh, two books which we're going to be talking about a lot today. Uh, the first one was Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products and Indistractable... How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life. If you want to check out uh, neer's blogs, you can go on uh, his website, neerandfar.com Also, he's written for New York Times, Howard uh, Business Review, Time Magazine, and Psychology Today. And he's also uh, an active investor in habit-forming technology. So you know, neer's invested in Eventbrite, Anchor, Kahoot, Canva, Refresh. So without further ado, I give you Air. Uh, Neil, thanks for coming on the podcast.
1: Thanks. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: So, Nir, uh, uh this one was uh, so when I was reading your books, I was, I was just telling you offline that uh, I usually have this habit before I call someone on the podcast to be very sure. I tend to read the books at least twice. I made a mistake. I've only read your books once. So uh, I'm going to try my best to ask you. Uh, so, so my first question here is that. Uh, you know, let's start a li- with a little bit about your journey, how you got interested uh, in the field of psychology and let's say consumer behavior or human behavior in that sense. So could you tell everybody who's uh, who's a listener or a viewer of this podcast a little bit about your background, how you got into this field?
1: Sure. So I've uh, always been fascinated in how products and services can change behavior uh, if I really go back far enough, my fascination with the field probably started when I was a child and I was clinically obese. So I remember, uh, going with my mother to the doctor and the, the, the doctor saying, okay, look, here's the weight chart and here's normal weight, here's overweight, and here's you, you're obese. <laughs> and I went through uh, a very rough period of my life, uh, struggling with my weight. And I was also, um, you know, I became very interested in how is it that these things outside of me seem to control me? Why was it that food seemed to have this effect on me that I would eat things I didn't want to eat and I was becoming someone I didn't want to become. And when I kind of grew out of that phase and decided to do something about it, uh, I think I always kind of remembered that impact on my life. I mean, I was the, uh, not to get too personal, but I, I was always the the kid who when when I went to the swimming pool, I would never take off my shirt because i didn't want anyone to see my roles uh, and 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 this was this was this was a tough thing for me <laughs> in my childhood and i I still struggle I still have to watch what I eat today but I think that's probably where this fascinated fascination started for me and uh, you know fast forward uh, many decades later um, when I started my last company, um, I had a front row seat in Uh, Silicon Valley to see what many of my clients were doing in this space. So I was there for the rise of Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and WhatsApp and Slack. And I was amazed by how these companies were so good at changing human behavior. And I wanted to know what their secret was. And that same fascination of, wait a minute, why do we eat things we don't always want to eat? And how do these companies manipulate our behaviors to get us to buy things that we may not otherwise buy? Uh, I was noticing with many of these tech companies that they use psychological tricks to change user behavior. And so my idea was, what if we could use those same tactics for good? What if we could get people hooked to healthy habits in their lives? And so I wanted to discover this recipe, this formula for how Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and WhatsApp and Slack and Snapchat, what was the secret behind how these products were designed to be so sticky and so habit forming so that I could share these secrets with the rest of the world so that more people could build the kind of products that not only get people to uh, spend their time on frivolity, but perhaps help them have healthy habits in their lives. And that's exactly what's happened. So uh, Hooked was published back in 2014. I taught a class on the content of that book at the Stanford Graduate School of Business and later at the Hasso Planner Institute of Design at Stanford. And the methodology in the book has been taught and utilized in uh, every conceivable industry from education. Companies like Kahoot, uh, one of the world's largest educational software companies, uh, helps millions of kids get hooked to in-classroom learning using the hook model. Um, companies like Fitbod get people hooked to exercise. Companies like Duolingo use the hook model to help people learn new languages. So that was always the motivation behind how we can use behavioral design tactics for good to help people build good habits in their lives. And then last year, 2019, I published my second book, Indistractable, which is about how to control your attention and choose your life. So if Hooked was about how do we build good habits, I wanted to explore the deeper psychology of how do we break these bad habits in our lives. And I think we can actually have both. We can have our cake and eat it too. We can use technology in a way that serves us, while also understanding how to use technology or any distraction for that matter uh, in, in a way that we don't feel like we are serving it.
0: Yeah, see, that's where I find you to be very different from from the usual uh, uh, discussion these days, uh, especially post uh, the latest Netflix uh documentary Social Dilemma, where we've only seen, in a very weird way, we've only seen one side of the story, if I if I was to say, uh, when it comes to social media. And I'll be very honest, I, I've been someone who's been very critical of uh, the negative, uh, negative effects of, of social media on our lives. So so let me put it this way to you, near and I want you to tell me how do you feel about it. So uh, uh, now to me, social media as a premise is based on as you said, I mean, that was your book, right? Getting us hooked onto a platform. So it basically the whole idea, the whole business is based upon you go on a platform and the job of the platform to make money is to make sure that you're basically going to be on the platform for a certain period of time. Now, having said that, that's, I mean, I think that's a perfectly legitimate cause, but here's the thing. There are certain negative, Side effects, which uh, obviously you talk about in Indistractable too, but here's the thing. Now uh, let me use uh, normal uh, normal things that we've had a problem with in in our past. Let's say cigarette smoking. Now. Addiction is a problem when it comes to cigarette smoking. Now, I don't know about how it goes out in in the United States of America, for say, but I remember when I used to study in Canada and definitely it happens in India. So whenever we go and buy a pack of cigarettes, right, we see that very uh, ugly looking photo of somebody uh, having huge problems or something that would trigger you away. Or I mean, they're assuming it triggers you away from buying that pack of cigarettes. Now, uh, it's basically a statutory warning that we get before we consume that product. Now, here's my grouse with the social media companies, per se, uh, where I've noticed that whenever I go, let's say, as a new user on Twitter or, uh, or Facebook or Instagram or YouTube, uh, I don't get a statutory warning. Do you think we need something of that sort before we get into you know what a trigger is and the technicalities of the trigger? but, but I wanted to know your views because I was really looking forward to asking you this question.
1: Yeah, well, I think you know when, when it comes to cigarettes, there are some clear dangers uh, that are caused to the individual who smokes uh, some real harm. Cigarettes do cause cancer. We know that that's a pretty uh, established scientific fact. Um, it's hard for me to understand what the harm done is uh, for video games or social media to the individual level other than wasting time. Maybe I'm missing something. What what do you think that warning the label should be?
0: I don't know. Uh, Maybe that the ultimate aim and the design of this platform is to make sure that you spend the maximum amount of time over here. And that's what we're in it for. And now that you know we're in it for that, you're free to use it.
1: Okay. I'm all for that. As long as we put that same warning label on cricket and football and the news and Netflix and books and movies, should I continue? Yeah, you I see, get it. the problem. We love to judge everyone else and how everyone else spends their time. And we are holier than everyone else because I like to watch cricket. I like to watch football, but you playing video games, what a waste of time. You're wasting your life. Don't you know the incentives of these companies are to spend your time, your precious attention and sell it to advertisers as if that's not the business model of cricket? (laughs) It's the same stupid stuff, people. We are all wasting our time on frivolity. And you know what? There's nothing wrong with it. But let's stop complaining about, oh, that bastard spending his time uh, wasting it away when we're doing the same thing, right? But why is is watching sports on TV uh, more sanctimonious than playing a video game? Can
0: you tell me? Ah, I, I get you. That's been something that I've always struggled with myself whenever I think about it. But uh, it, it's it, it's almost as if, uh, you know, it's like a buyer's remorse. You know what it's doing to you, but you're still going to do it anyways. But you hope somebody else tells you that don't do it. <laughs> yeah. And, and this is the big picture here. We
1: have been relentlessly brainwashed by these chicken little tech critics that tell us technology's hijacking your brain, that it's addicting you, that there's nothing you can do about it. And that is exactly what the media companies and the tech companies want you to believe. They want you to believe that you are helpless. They want you to believe that it's an addiction. Look, I know how these companies get you hooked. I wrote the book on how they get you hooked. That was the name of my book. I know every trick and tactic they use. I wrote the book on it. And I'm telling you, these techniques are good. They're not that good. This isn't hijacking your brain. Hijacking is what those people did to us on 9-11. Hijacking is not going on Facebook. Hijacking is not playing Candy Crush. Give me a break. What these people are doing by telling you that you're addicted, that there's nothing you can do about it, that it's hijacking your brain, they are leading to what we call learned helplessness. And this is part of this pervasive victimization culture that we are living in today, where nothing is my fault. Nothing is my responsibility. Everything is because some big bad person is doing this to me. And in this one little corner of of the world, I have to stand up and say enough. This is bullshit. We are not freebasing Facebook. We're not injecting Instagram. We're not snorting Snapchat, for God's sakes. These are products that we want to be engaging. That's the whole point. They're supposed to be entertaining. Are we going to say, hey, uh, Netflix, stop making such interesting shows. I want to watch them. Uh, hey, Apple, your your phones are too user friendly. Please make them harder to use. Okay. No, that's stupid. Products are not going to become less engaging and we don't want them to. Products becoming more engaging is not a problem. It's progress. So we have to take a step back and understand of course these companies have an incentive to make their products good. That's what we want from them. Do we want something different? We want them to be engaging. So in this regard, you know, there's lots of things that you can bemoan the tech industry for. Um, fake news, misinformation, monopoly status. Okay, lots of stuff to discuss there. But when it comes to this one question, which by the way, all those other arguments rest upon uh, of are these products hijacking your brain and addicting you? rubbish. It's not an addiction. It is a distraction. But of course, when we call it what it really is, oh, that's no fun, you know, because people want it to be an addiction, right? We don't, An addiction is a pathology. It's a disease. We don't talk about epilepsy or Tourette's in this way. Why do we talk about addiction this way? That everything is somehow addicting us. Rubbish. It's disrespectful to the people who actually have this disease, just like alcohol. Look, alcohol, would you agree, is highly addictive, But is everyone who had a a glass of wine with dinner an alcoholic? Of course not. A very small percentage of people who drink alcohol become alcoholics, just like a very small percentage of people who use social media or video games also get addicted to these technologies. But this is not the overwhelming majority of people. It's a tiny, tiny fraction of people. And we need to recognize this truth and treat it as such that we have to stop blaming this technology and realize it's not an addiction. It is a distraction. But of course, we don't want to call it that Because then, wait a minute, my kids constantly using their devices, hmm, maybe that means I should do something about it, right? Or me constantly checking my phone, wait a minute, if it's not addiction, what is it? Oh, shoot, now I have to take responsibility for that. Oh, that's no fun. Can't I just go back to blaming somebody else? And so this is why we fall into this dark pit of blaming and shaming, which we know doesn't work, and it's time to stop.
0: That's a beautiful word you use there, distraction. I think that is the right word, actually, if you ask me, because I remember I don't have kids, but my friends have kids, and you know, we'd go to their house and i'm I'm being very honest. I know it's very bad, but you know if the child is, you know demanding too much attention, what does the parent do? They just put a damn screen in front of the kid. And they're like, there you go. Now you're not going to bug me. I'm going to chat with my friend who's over here in yeah. my house. Yeah. It's a distraction.
1: Yeah, yeah it is. And, and who, who ever thought, uh, in what universe did we think that an iPad should be an nanny? That was never the intended use of these products. And then we say, oh, it's Apple's fault? Come on, give me a break. Every generation has done this, right? My generation, they used to put us in front of the TV, which was an irresponsible thing to do, right? It it drives me crazy when I go to a restaurant. Just yesterday, I went to a restaurant and at the table, two children, two adults, everybody on their phone, right? Because the parents couldn't stand having a conversation with their kids. And so that's not a, a fault of the technology, that's a fault of the parents. That's our responsibility to make sure that we raise children who are able to sit at the table and have a conversation.
0: Yeah. I, I Again, I can relate to this so much because I always remember this. Now, personally, uh, I'm a faithless guy, but I've noticed this thing with uh, my religious friends, and they would always say, you know what? Uh, I don't like this. The kids are not you know, into religion. I'm just giving you an example here. And I would always wonder, I mean, if you want to, you can present the idea. I mean nobody stopped you from presenting it but uh, I guess it's always the problem of the other side and and uh, in a way uh, the right word to use is that we always like to outsource our problems to someone else we like to yes. outsource uh, uh, our mistakes to someone else and and I always say like in many ways uh, I mean uh, uh, Not to uh, say it in a derogatory way, but I've always thought God, too, was an outsourcing agent for a lot of my friends, that they outsource their problem to their God. And and in this weird way, we are outsourcing our own follies and our own mistakes of being a social media uh, addict on the medium where it could simply be that I uninstall the Twitter app from my phone, right? Yeah.
1: And, and this is where I think that what I'm arguing for is not pro tech or anti tech. I think this is a false dichotomy, right? If you want good versus evil, go read a religious te- uh, text, for example, because that's not the real world. The real world is not black and white, good versus evil. The real world is nuance. It's shades of gray. So as much as I am uh, for nuance, you know, look, if, if you don't want to use Facebook, if you don't want to use Instagram, if you want to stop using these products, I'm all for that, right? Stop using them. Screw them. I, I'm not saying we should use them. What I'm saying is make sure we use them in a way that serves us as opposed to us serving them. So what I want to help people do is to realize that distraction is what's keeping us from accomplishing our goals, from living out our values. And I think if, if, you, if you'll indulge me, I think it's very important that we understand what does that word even mean? When we use this word distraction, what are we talking about? And it's important to understand that if we really want to get a grip on what distraction is, we have to understand what distraction is not. So if you ask most people, what is the opposite of distraction? They'll tell you it's focus but it's not focused. The opposite of distraction is not focus. The opposite of distraction is traction. And if you look at the origin of both words, they both come from the same Latin root, trahare, which means to pull. And they both end in the same six letters, A-C-T-I-O-N, that spells action. So traction, by definition, is any action that pulls you towards what you say you're going to do, things you do with intent, things that help lead you towards your values and help you become the kind of person you want to become. Now, the opposite of traction is distraction. Distraction is any action that pulls you away from what you plan to do, anything that pulls you further away from your goals, further away from your values, further away from becoming the kind of person you want to become. So this is really important for two reasons. Number one, anything can become a distraction, right? Even those things that we think are productive, that we think are beneficial can also become a distraction. If it's something you didn't plan to do with your time, It is a distraction, right? I'll give you a a great example to illustrate the point. Before I embarked on this five years of research to write Indistractable, my daily routine was sitting down at my desk. I would get to work and I would say, okay, I'm going to work on that big project today. Nothing's going to get in my way. I'm not going to get distracted. I'm not going to procrastinate. Here I go. I'm going to get started. But first, let me check email. (laughs) right? Let me just do that one quick thing on my to-do list. Let me just do that work task that, hey, it's a work task, right? It's a worky. I'm being productive, so it's not a distraction. No, what I didn't realize is that if it's not what I said I was going to do with my time, it is by definition a distraction, especially if it's a work-related task, because this is the most dangerous form of distraction, the distraction that tricks you into prioritizing the urgent at the expense of the important. So anything can be a distraction, and conversely, anything can be traction. So there's nothing wrong with prayer or meditation or yoga or video games or social media or whatever it is you want to do with your time as long as you do it on your schedule, not someone else's. So we can turn distraction into traction simply by planning for it, but there's no moral hierarchy between how you want to spend your time as long as you're spending it according to your values and your schedule Go for it. Enjoy. But that's how we turn distraction into traction. We plan time for it.
0: Yeah. So I want to focus on a particular word. Obviously, it's a chapter in both your books and your first book. It's, I think, chapter two, if I remember correctly, it's called Trigger. Now, uh, I would request you to actually explain to us what do you mean when you say trigger? because And and how do you use the word trigger in terms of uh, the first book, which is Hooked, and then the second book also?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So they're used in the same exact way. So a trigger is a call to action. It tells us what to do next. So now if you can picture in your mind, you have traction, things that move you towards what you say you're going to do, things that you do with intent. And the opposite of traction is distraction. Now, what prompts us to take these actions are triggers. And there are two kinds of triggers. We have what we call external triggers. External triggers are the pings, the dings, the rings, anything in our outside environment that leads us towards traction or distraction. And that's what most people tend to blame right we tend to blame all of these things in our outside environment and we say oh my my phone distracted me right and we, we're, we're blaming the external trigger the notification whatever it was that led us towards a distraction but as much as we blame those things that is not the leading cause of distraction when you look at time studies the leading cause of distraction is not what is happening outside of us but rather what i learned in my five years of research is that distraction begins from within that the leading cause of distraction are what we call the internal triggers what are internal triggers internal triggers are uncomfortable emotional states that we seek to escape from boredom loneliness fatigue uncertainty stress anxiety this is what prompts us to escape this is the root cause of distraction and procrastination it's not a moral failing There's nothing wrong with you. You don't need to take some pill to fix this. Chances are not everyone has ADD. Not everyone is addicted. It's simply that we haven't learned the tools to deal with discomfort in a healthy way that leads us towards traction rather than distraction. So this is a really, really important point because all human behavior, all human behavior is prompted by a desire to escape discomfort. Everything you do, we used to think it was about pain and pleasure, right? Freud's pleasure principle, carrots and sticks, Jeremy Bentham said the same thing. We've heard it a million times. It's not true that neurologically speaking, your brain does not do what it does because of the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain. Rather, it is the avoidance of pain all the way down. Everything you do is about a desire to escape discomfort, which means therefore that time management is pain management. Let me say it again. Time management is pain management. It doesn't matter if the distraction is too much news, too much booze, too much food, too much football, too much Facebook. It doesn't matter. The source of the distraction is always a desire to escape discomfort. And that is the most important thing you can do on your path to becoming indistractable is to understand what is the discomfort you are trying to escape.
0: So you know in in a very weird way and and I know you you've talked about the Greeks a lot uh, in your book too and you you lose a lot of but the ancients kind of figured it out then right the ancients actually understood the mind in a very weird way that I mean uh, I'm from India so for me Buddha or maybe Shankara you know the the guys we read or we grew up reading I mean, uh, looking at Buddha as an example and, you know, to look at the understanding of how the mind works as per Buddha and Buddha always says, you know, the thoughts are kind of interconnected. There is a, uh, there's a chain of thoughts. I think, uh, even, uh, was it Parfit who, or or maybe Hume, uh, Hume too had his own bundle theory where he talks about consciousness as just basically thoughts coming in and out, coming in and out. So so when we talk about these triggers that you're talking about, and if we assume uh, consciousness to be like a bundle theory, or well, how Buddha taught, spoke about, you know, uh, I don't know, in, in Pali he used the word pratitya samutapad, that, that's what he used to call it. Now, How does one recognize that, Okay, these are my internal triggers and now what would I do? So Buddha obviously basically said, sit back, observe your mind and how the mind works. Just just observe like a lot of us. I mean, I meditate and that's what I've realized that, you know, when you meditate, you kind of see thoughts coming in. And going out you know a lot of people often mistake meditation to be having no thoughts it's actually not having no thoughts it's basically recognizing how your thoughts come in and out so if i was to become or go towards this uh, this person who wants to be indistractable how do i do that how do i recognize this what would be the steps then
1: yeah so there's a whole section in the book on exactly how to do this how to master internal triggers and i i don't talk a lot about meditation and mindfulness not that they don't work uh they, they they're very effective if you do them. (laughs) And so uh, there's been so many books that have covered this topic on meditation and mindfulness that I didn't feel like I wanted to add to the discussion. I wanted to talk to the people who maybe have tried these techniques and found that either they lack effectiveness or maybe they're not the tool for every job, right? That sometimes a hammer is a great thing for driving in nails, but when you wanna screw in a nail, you need a screwdriver, you need a different tool. So fundamentally, there are only two things we can do with these internal triggers. We can either fix the source of the problem or we can learn how to cope with that discomfort in a healthier way. So for example, meditation and mindfulness can be some wonderful techniques to help us deal with those uncomfortable emotional states that we can't necessarily do something about, right? Part of being a grownup is sometimes feeling bad, that suffering is eternal, that is part of the human condition, and we can't fix every problem. But you know what? Sometimes we have to stop meditating, get off our butts, and fix the source of the discomfort. And I think right now, I think in general, some people, not everyone, but some proponents don't talk about that side. We don't talk about how, you know what, if what's causing you the discomfort is a toxic workplace or a a difficult home life situation uh, or a political situation that's causing upheaval in your life, sometimes the solution is to act, is to do something, right? We can't meditate all of our problems away. There's a time and a place for every single tool. So I show you how to recognize the source of that discomfort, the source of that internal trigger and fix the source of the problem if we can or learn tactics for mastering those internal triggers. And here I, I draw upon acceptance of commitment therapy. This is a very well studied uh, uh, um, uh, discipline in psychology that we can use to help us overcome these internal triggers to master them so that they serve us as opposed to us serving them. And I think one of the important points here is that, you know, I think the self-help industry, at least in the United States, uh, has really done people a disservice in that we've been told that happiness is the goal, that somehow feeling bad is bad. And that really has not served people because, you know, we know that the more we chase after happiness, the more miserable we become. It's a byproduct. It's not the end goal. Uh, and, And in fact, if you think about it from an evolutionary perspective, being happy all the time, being contented, is evolutionarily uh, a dis, uh, defeatist, right? It, it, it would not advance a species' goal. If there was ever a sect of Homo sapiens who was happy all the time, who was contented with life, our ancestors probably would have killed and eaten them, right? That would not be an evolutionarily beneficial trait. That happiness is, by design, uh, and evolutionarily designed uh, to to be a fleeting sensation. Our perpetual state is in fact disquietude. It is discomfort because it's that discomfort. It's that desire. It's that craving that causes us, that drives us to invent, to create, to overturn despots, to create life-changing medicine. This is what gets us to move our lives forward. So we don't want to escape that discomfort. We want to harness it like rocket fuel
0: to lead us towards traction rather than trying to escape it with distraction. So so you when you mentioned the entire self-help industry in America has gone towards happiness now now in the aristotelian sense well uh, do you think this is actually not what I, because I think eudaimonia was human flourishing right it was not necessarily happiness to be per se so do you think they have actually misconstrued what even Aristotle wanted to say in, the, in a very very weird way Well, I think that, you know, if you look at the number of uh, books on the shelf that have
1: happiness as the promise on the title, uh, I think you'll see it's, it's something people certainly want. People think they want eternal happiness and bliss and contentment. And I think that's an unrealistic goal because what happens is as soon as they figure out That life isn't uh, ever by design something that's uh, constantly rosy and peachy and everything is great all the time. Every time you have a slightest bump in the road, uh, every time you find yourself uncomfortable, you think something's wrong. And I think that's an unhealthy reaction that, in fact, discomfort can be very beneficial right? That we can utilize that emotional discomfort. We can, we can lean into it. We can ask ourselves, where is it coming from? What's the source of that anxiety, stress, uh, uncertainty? Where is that coming from? And how can I learn to either do something about it or deal with it in a healthier manner?
0: Uh, Something that stood out for me in, in your second book, which was in part two, you talk about make time for traction. And you, so, I I love chapter nine and 10, both where you talk about uh, chapter nine, you say, turn your values into time. And then you say, control the inputs, not the outcomes. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I really love that section of the book. I was like, I I could relate so much to that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I think another popular myth is this idea of to-do lists (laughs) that we can run our life on to-do lists because some productivity guru said one day that to-do lists are the answer. And I think people have taken this way too far. I, I, for many, many years, kept a to-do list and ran my life based on whatever was on this list. Now, to-do lists have some really big problems associated with them. One is that there's no constraint to a to-do list. You can add endless items to your to-do list, more and more and more. There's no end to a to-do list. So this is why most people who run their life with a to-do list never finish what's on that list. And so this leads us to the second big problem, is that to-do lists perpetuate harmful self-stereotypes. That when you go home at the end of the day, and you look at your to-do list, and there's still a million things you haven't finished on that to-do list, you begin to form a new self-image. You know, we know that behavior change requires identity change. And so what kind of identity are you cementing If day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, you look at that to-do list and it tells you every day, you are a loser. You did not do what you said you were going to do. You're lying to yourself yet again. And so that's a very unhealthy uh, belief system. It's a very unhealthy identity that over time we begin to adopt on ourselves. And the third thing that makes running your life on a to-do list so pernicious is that even when you have leisure time, even when you have time off, to just enjoy yourself. What most people who run their life on a to-do list do, they're too busy still thinking about the stuff left undone. This was what my life used to look like. I would come home from work and all I want to do is just spend some time with my daughter or just relax or watch something on Netflix. And in the back of my mind is, oh, I still didn't finish those five tasks. I still have stuff to do. And I couldn't even enjoy my free time. And so this is why running your life on a to-do list does not work. Now, I'm not anti-to-do list. I'm not anti-keeping a register of the things you want to do. I'm anti-running your life on a to-do list. So if the first thing you look for in the morning is your to-do list, rather than your calendar, you've made a big mistake. Your life needs to be run on your calendar. You have to schedule your time. Here's the thing. Write this down. You cannot call something a distraction unless you know what it distracted you from. Let me say it again. You cannot call something a distraction unless you know what it distracted you from. So if you have lots of blank open time in your calendar, what the hell did you get distracted from? Everything is a distraction if you don't plan your day. You know, there's a reason we call it paying attention. We pay attention just like we pay with dollars and cents or rupees. We wouldn't sit on a corner and just hand out money to whoever wants it. No, we'd be judicious about who we would pay our money to. And so why do we think that it's okay to just give attention to whoever wants it? That's also silly. So what we have to do is to plan the input, not the output. A to-do list is just a register of output. But of course, you can't have output without input. What is our input? For knowledge workers, your input is only two things, time and attention. That's it, your time and attention. And so we have to make sure that we budget in that time and attention to make sure we do what we say we're going to do. Now, this brings us back to your question around how do you do what I call turning your values into time? Now, what are values? Values are defined as attributes of the person you want to become. Values are defined as attributes of the person you want to become. So what we have to do is to sit down and ask ourselves, how would the person I want to become spend their time? And what we're going to do is we're going to have a weekly calendar, okay, just seven days ahead of us. Don't do these five-year plans and these vision boards and all this junk that people spend all their time on. Instead, let's just talk about tomorrow. How would the person you want to become spend their time tomorrow? And I want you to think about these three life domains. You are at the center of these three life domains. Then your relationships. And finally, your work, okay? So how would the person you want to become spend time on themselves. When it comes to proper rest, nutrition, uh, time for prayer, meditation, anything that you want to do to invest in yourself, including fun. You want to play video games? Great. Put that time on your calendar, the time you want to invest in becoming the kind of person you want to become by investing in yourself. Okay, That's first. Then your relationships. You know, So many of us, we give our most important relationships whatever scraps of time are left over in our day. Instead, plan time for those relationships, your spouse, your kids, your siblings, your parents, your best friends. Put that time in your calendar so you make sure you invest in those relationships. And finally, our work. There are two types of work. We have what we call reactive work and we have reflective work. Reactive work, this is how most people spend their day reacting to stuff, reacting to emails, reacting to phone calls, reacting to notifications, they're running around all day reacting to stuff and they have no time to do reflective work. Reflective work is the kind of work that requires us to work without distraction. The planning, the thinking, that requires us to do to, to work without distraction. So if you don't plan that time, somebody's going to plan it for you. Most people are running around real fast in the total wrong direction because they make no time for thinking. So that has to be part of our day as well. This is how we turn our values into time by making time for traction.
0: You know, the key word that, that I'm looking at when I listened to you or when I was reading, it was discipline and, uh, One of the things that I've noticed in my life is, I don't know, with me, I'm actually a very naturally disciplined person. I have always, I maybe, uh, I don't know, I I got this from my father. My father was always like, You got to be very disciplined, and he would be a a guy who used to plan things. So I guess just I got it from my father. But the one thing I have noticed in my life as an entrepreneur or even as a podcaster is that even when I kind of uh, talk to people uh, (laughs) or when I deal with people in the business world, I have I have observed this one thing that people lack is discipline, and I and I constantly get get this question all the time. How do you manage your time? And to me, at a personal level, I seem to have a lot of time to do a lot of things, but most people don't seem to have time to do any of the things they want. What happens? What goes wrong when people don't find this time? Where uh, to me, it's like twenty-four hours is a lot of time, but for most people, it is not. Where where are we missing there? Well, uh,
1: I, would, I would take issue with that a little bit. I don't think I use the word discipline anywhere in my book <laughs> because I don't have a lot of self-discipline. I never have. Uh, when I was clinically obese, I didn't have a lot of self-discipline. Even kind of hearing that word kind of makes, uh, makes my hair on my neck rise up because I, I just hate that word because it, it makes it sound like it's somehow uh, your fault <laughs> that you got distracted. And, and let me be very clear, these distractions are not your fault, right? You didn't create all these amazing things that uh, that can distract you, right? You didn't invent television. You didn't invent Facebook. You didn't invent WhatsApp. You didn't invent these things. They're not your fault, but they are your responsibility. The idea here, is that we don't want to need to rely on self-discipline. We don't need willpower. In fact, the whole concept of willpower is really being challenged right now as as something that may not even exist, it turns out, that some studies today are showing that willpower is a concept, maybe a false concept altogether. That in fact, what I realized, what I uh, uncovered in my five years of research is that indistractable people, they don't have a lot of willpower. They don't have a lot of self-control. They don't have a lot of discipline. What they have is a system. They have routines in their life that make it easy to do what they say they're going to do. They don't have to expend a lot of willpower to go to the gym or to eat right or to uh, write that novel or to do the projects that are fulfilling to them or to spend time with the people they love. It's something that's naturally embedded in their day because they have these routines. But if you don't understand how the world's most successful people stay on track and do what they say they're going to do, to you as an outsider, it might look like discipline, but in reality, it's not. It's a system. And my, my guess is if we look closely at your life, uh, you sound like the kind of person who may have these routines already in place. You just might not realize how effective they are for you and how different they are from other people's lives.
0: Yeah, it could very well be the case. I mean, as I was listening to you talking about it, I was like, yeah, I can actually relate to it. It's kind of like me because it just happens with me in a very natural way. It's not like I have to work hard towards. It's like if I have to do a podcast, I have to do a podcast. It's it's done. It's written in my calendar. Then if I have to do a workout, I have to do a workout. If I have to read two hours daily, I have to read two hours daily. Everything kind of naturally flows for me from one place to the other. But then uh, are we in a way neurologically predisposed in in some ways and some people are not? then then how does it where where does evolution come into this let's say evolutionary psychology come into this yeah so certainly
1: you know our brains are uh have a predilection towards distraction that's for sure that uh we are we know that we are present bias uh this comes out of a a heuristic out of behavioral economics that we tend to value rewards that are immediate uh, more highly than long-term rewards uh, we know that, that we are inflicted with boredom. Uh, there's been many studies that show that uh, boredom is a, is a universal human condition. Uh, there's some amazing work done by Timothy Wilson at Harvard where he took test subjects and he put them in a room with nothing in the room but a band on these test subjects' arms that he told would administer a painful shock if they pushed on a button. And all these test subjects had to do was to sit in this room with this band on their arm and just wait. And it was 60 percent of men and something like 30 percent of women, rather than just sitting in silence and in boredom, would prefer to shock themselves with an electrical current that they were told would hurt them. (laughs) And they did it anyway because they hate, you know, we as as human beings, we do not like this condition of boredom. So I would agree with you that there are definitely uh, uh, conditions in the, uh, or I, I should say preconditions or um, um, adopted traits in our species that give us a predilection uh, away from having a lot of, uh, of, of focus or uh, ability to, to uh, stay on task. But here's the thing. That's not really an argument to say we can't do it. You know, there's so many things that we learn to do that are unnatural, quote unquote, that we learn to do, you know, uh toilet training is pretty unnatural. The natural thing to do is to defecate and urinate wherever you feel like it. That's natural. But of course, we all learn how to how to be potty trained because we're better for it. And so this is why this is becoming the skill of the century that the world is becoming a more distractible place. You know, if you think the world is distracting now, just wait a few years. We know where this is going. The world is only become, going to become more distracting. And so it's imperative to not only become indistractable ourselves, we have got to teach our kids how to become indistractable or they're really going to bifurcate into what I think is going to be two groups of people, people who let their time and their, their attention and their lives be controlled by others and people who stand up and say, no, I decide how I control my time and my attention and my life. I am indistractable.
0: You know, you, you use the words kids there. So before I take a couple of questions from the live viewers, I, I wanted to ask you one last question. Sure. And, you know, before I ask you that question, I got reminded of George Carlin's joke. Uh, once he was joking about, I don't know which special it was. And he, he actually spoke about, you know, all these distractions that we have in our life. And he was saying, you know, when we were growing up, you know all i used to do is sit on the ground and just take a stick and just do nothing what happened to doing that and i so when you were talking about it i was like yeah carlin was right times have changed and the amount of products that we have in our life just keep keep increasing and i guess we need we need uh, these kinds of tools that you offer to uh, to deal with them but you you t- you spoke about kids and 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 i gave you the example of you know going to my friends houses and they would just put the screen in front of their child and they'd be like okay you're on your own as I deal with my friend, but obviously that's that's not the right way, right? I mean, that's not how you want to deal with your kids. But so, and you have a in your book, you actually have a detailed chapter. Uh, I think it's either six or seven. I don't remember the name uh, of the chapter, but uh, the number. Uh, so, could you tell a little bit because uh, you know I have a certain age group that uh, does listen to this podcast and sure. and they do have kids. So, so how how would we deal in this age of too many options, as I would say, when it yeah. comes to, you know, uh, keeping us distracted. How do we raise our kids in such an environment?
1: Yeah, so there's a whole section in the book on how to raise indistractable kids. So there's there's a lot more to this. But, you know, I, I would first acknowledge that um, screen time is a pretty crappy metric. Uh, that just tracking, you know, how many hours a day a kid spends on a device is not really the best uh you know, the thing to look at. We want to, it's more complicated than that. Back to what we were talking about at the beginning of the conversation, it's about nuance, right? That if your child is on Skype talking to their grandparents, I think that's wonderful, right? That's fantastic. That cannot be the same uh, weight as, uh, you know, watching, you know, adult content online, right? Which is clearly something that kids are not ready for that has to be age appropriate. So we can't just have this blanket statement of, well, you know, all screen time, good or all screen time bad. We have to be very aware of what content our kids are consuming in the same way we would think about all media, right? We think that reading is good, right? Oh, what parent wouldn't want to see their kid reading? Well, you know, if you took your kid to the library Uh, My daughter is 12 years old. Let me tell you, there's a lot of books in the library she's not ready for that a 12-year-old girl should not be reading. So the general rule of thumb is that we have to make sure that content is age appropriate. Okay, that's the very first rule. The second rule is that if we want to raise indistractable kids, we as adults have to be indistractable ourselves. Kids come born with what we call a hypocrisy detection device they are born with these little invisible sensors that are constantly scanning to see where we as adults screw up. And so you cannot tell your child, stop playing Fortnite while you're checking Facebook or email. It does not work that way. We have to set a good example. Okay. So the best thing you can do to raise an indistractable kid is to learn these tactics, to become indistractable yourself and to be a little vulnerable. You have to tell your kid, look, I am struggling with this as well. I am trying to become indistractable, so let's do this together, okay? That kind of honesty, a lot of parents don't want to show any kind of vulnerability, and it's actually a mistake. We know that parents uh, can, can parent better when they involve their kids in these struggles and are honest with the fact that they're struggling themselves. Uh, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of deep advice here that, that it would take me a little too long to, to explain right now, but you know, basically what we're going to do is to follow the same four steps of the indistractable model of mastering those internal triggers. You know, we talked about the uncomfortable emotional states that we as adults seek to escape. Kids have very similar but 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 different customized internal triggers themselves. We have to understand what are they escaping from. One of the things parents don't want to, want to recognize is that when kids overuse or abuse technology, this is caused by what we call the needs displacement hypothesis that when children don't get what they are looking for offline, they look for it online. And so what kids are generally missing are what we call psychological nutrients. These three elements that, that every psychologist on the face of the earth knows about. It's called self-determination theory, competency, autonomy, and relatedness. This is the most well-studied theory of human psycho, uh, th- uh, f- human flourishing. Every psychologist has heard about it. It's a w- very well-established 40-year-old theory of human flourishing and well-being. When kids don't get these three psychological nutrients offline, they go online. So if you don't understand what they're even looking for, you have no hope of, of understanding why they're online as much as they are. So that's one thing we have to do is master those internal triggers, Teach, understand what those internal triggers are ourselves. Then we just go around these four steps that I talk about for adults, the same exact four steps apply for children. We make time for traction, right? There's nothing wrong with scheduling time for your kids to play video games. In fact, if you want them to stop obsessing about playing video games, plan time for it, especially during this epidemic when they're just kind of sitting around at home, make time for it. Sit down with them and make a schedule, just like I I would recommend making a schedule for yourself. Then hacking back the external triggers, right? One of the biggest mistakes parents make is having technology in the bedroom, right? The reason we see these declining rates of of mental health uh, in, in children when kids are having more mental health problems I think what we're seeing is not that the technology is causing these problems. It's what the technology is displacing principally sleep, sleep. So kids who get more sleep don't have these depression symptoms. It's not the technology. It's the fact that what they're doing instead of using the technology, they're not getting enough sleep. So anything that beeps or boops or buzzes in the bedroom needs to come out, including old technology, right? Why does a kid need a television set in their bedroom? Why does an adult need a television set in their bedroom for that matter? It should be a sacred space. It should be somewhere that's reserved for certain types of behaviors and should be a no phone zone, I think. So we remove those external triggers that don't serve us. And then we prevent distraction from pacts. So we we teach children how to, funny enough, use technology to prevent technology distraction. So I describe exactly how to do that in the book as well. So it's really these four basic techniques that we can teach our children to become indistractable.
0: Alright you so I'm just going to take a few uh, a couple of questions from the live viewers so somebody has asked do you see any problem with the social media algorithms the way Yuval Noah Harari sees it I think Yuval Harari yeah. talks about it in his book Homo Deus yeah so uh, I'm not talking about sapiens I think it's about yeah. Dea, Homo Deus so do you see any problems in the way Yuval Harari presents
1: them Yeah he you know Harari has a very nice quote where he talks about how the algorithms know you better than your mother knows you. And he says this in a very scary way. And if you've seen The Social Dilemma, it probably scared the crap out of you because it was designed to be a docu-horror. They actually interviewed me for that movie and they didn't include my narrative because it didn't fit in line with the story they wanted to tell. Principally, that you are much more powerful than the tech companies. So let's go back. I'm glad uh, that the the person who asked the question mentioned Harari. Let's go back to uh, these algorithms knowing you better than your mother. I remember uh, at a certain age, my mother would tell me what to do a lot, right? Uh, It's cold outside, put on your coat. Uh, It's, uh, you know, you should eat more food. You haven't eaten enough. And you know what happened one day? I said, enough, stop telling me what to do. And this is what most people do. Your mother eventually annoys you, tells you what to do too much. And we have the psychological phenomenon called reactance. Reactance is when we rebel against someone threatening our autonomy. And so this is why we are much more powerful than the algorithms because when we realize what's happening, we get exactly what is going on right now. People say, stop telling me what to do. And you know what happens? The same thing that has always happened for the human species, two things. We adapt and we adopt, right? We adapt our technology. We improve the last generation of technology by making new and better technology And we adopt our behavior. We adopt our social uh, uh, mores to change the way we interact with these technologies. And this is exactly the change I want to facilitate in the world. If we sit here and say, well, let's wait till the tech companies fix it. Let's wait till the genius politicians do something about it. We will have lost a generation of people. We can do something about this right now without waiting for the tech companies, without waiting for the genius politicians to fix this problems. We can do something about this right now.
0: That actually makes a lot of sense, and uh, and as we discussed it in the first half of our chat, it it's always seems to me like we're always looking for an outsourcing agent. We always want to outsource our problem to someone else. Sometimes it's the government, sometimes it's uh, God, sometimes it's uh, the religious leader down the road, and and we don't want to uh, you know in in many ways look internally. And and they actually, I actually I, I agree with you. So yeah, uh, I wish we could do that. Now, this is a very interesting uh, question, and, and I, I think you might enjoy this. How does one confront social anxiety as an introvert? Somebody has asked this. Oh, this is uh, not my
1: swim lane, unfortunately. I don't know <laughs> social anxiety as an introvert. Uh, I, I don't, this is not my area of, of expertise, but I will say that there is a wonderful book uh, that, that I'd recommend uh, called Quiet by Susan Kane that deals exactly with this very topic
0: all right so there you go please go and buy that book so so you know i'm conscious of your time neer so before we wrap things up uh, one last uh, one last question that Same. somebody if somebody was to come to you and tell you okay neer uh, i read your book hooked and then i read your book indistractable and i know you're going you've been asked this question a lot of times in your life and that's why I did not start the discussion with this question, <laughs> but I have to ask you. So what if somebody comes and says, hey, what the hell, man? You started with hooked and now you're telling me to be indistractable. Uh, uh, I'm getting confused. So how do both recom- uh, you know, kind of complement each other? And what would your answer to, uh, be to those people? Yeah, I, th- I, think, I think you know my answer, right? What, what do you think my answer would be? Oh, uh I, I remember. See, I'll be biased because I was talking to Anurag about this. You know, our common friend Anurag. And Anurag told me that uh, you've been asked this question so many times. So, uh, your answer would be that uh, you kind of need both. You need both, as in you need the tools to to better your life, and that's why you need those tools to get hooked onto them. And then you need to know the to know to draw the lines where the tools don't take you over. So that you do, you become indistractable. So, I, I in a way, they're both complementary. Am I, am I getting it right? You want a job? You should, you should be my body double. You're, you've got it spot on.
1: <laughs> That's right. <laughs> that you know, we we can use these tools to help us build good habits, right? Nobody is getting addicted to fitness software. Nobody's getting addicted to enterprise software, right? Where well, the problem is not that a few companies have have uh, uh, sucked us into using their products. The problem is that far too many products suck, right? Think about government services. Think about local businesses. Think about all the opportunities we have to change people's lives for the better by making the kind of products that people use because they want to, not because they have to. The world would be so much better if more products learned from Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and made their products as easy to use and engaging as those big tech companies do. So we need more of this, not less of this. And that's exactly the point of Hooked. Indistractable is about how do we take personal responsibility for this stuff and make sure that we can use these things as opposed to them using us, that we can make sure that we can get the best of these tools uh, in in a way that, that enhances our lives as opposed to diminishes them.
0: Yeah. So in a very weird way, I mean, th- this is the thing, right? Uh, to the, These days, the whole thing, and, and uh, to go back to the beginning of the chat, it's all about, you know, you're either pro-tech or you're anti-tech, right? You you either think tech companies are this big evil, and it's it's now com- becoming, and, and, you know, somebody has asked this question uh, just now, and it's actually a very, it's it's become, all a, it's almost like an ideology. You're either in the is. technologies evil camp, and the technology is all good camp. And somewhere down the line, the truth is suffering in, in this entire process. So so how do
1: we get over this dilemma? You know, I think this is part of uh, a really, a, m- a much bigger narrative, honestly. I think this is a, a part of this post-modernist bullshit, frankly, that we see permeating so many areas of society now that basically tells us that there is no such thing as objective truth that it's all about power struggle that it's this cynical perspective that if you have power you will abuse it and you know i just don't buy it i don't buy this idea that uh, everybody is racist if they're in a position of power or everybody in business just wants to screw you over. That's what's become with this tech debate, just like so many other debates in our society. It's, it's gone from skepticism. And I think skepticism is a very healthy value. We want to be skeptics to now it's become cynicism. Cynicism is all about power struggles. It says it doesn't matter what you say or what you believe. If you're in a position of power, you are an oppressor. And that's what, we are, that's what these tech critics are saying about these tech companies. There's nothing they can do right. They can't fix it. Impossible. They're all bastards. And I got to be honest with you, I don't see it. <laughs> I think that there's a lot of opportunity for them to fix the problem. And here's the big problem, that we need people to get excited about technology to enter this field. If you don't like Facebook, join in and build a company to take them down. That's the whole beauty of the tech industry is that we believe in creative destruction. That if one product sucks, we we take them down by building a better product. That's what we always do. Paul Virilio, the philosopher said, when you invent the ship, you invent the shipwreck, right? When was the last time you heard about a shipwreck? Almost never. Why? Did we stop sailing ships? Of course not. We made ships better. That's what this is all about. But if we believe, oh, these tech products, they're so bad, they're melting our brains, that's another student that's going to say, oh, I'm going to go be a lawyer as opposed to going to be a tech innovator. And we need more innovators. This is what increases standards of living. This is what improves our lot in life. This is what's going to fix the environment. We need people to enter the technology industry and proudly believe that they can change the world and make it better through innovation.
0: All right, Nir, So before we wrap things up, just one last thing. So, well, when can we look forward to your next book? Uh, well, so tell me, uh, tell us, well, any new projects coming up that we need to look forward to? You know, I, I, I wish
1: I knew. I don't know what my next book will be. It'll come to me at some point. I just published Indistractable last year. And so it takes me about five years to kind of make this uh, journey for another book. I'll think of it at some point. I don't have a new one uh, at the moment. But if you want to keep up to date with my latest writing, uh, then that's all available. I publish about two articles a month on my blog, nearandfar.com. Near is spelled like my first name, nir and far.com.
0: All right, guys, time to wrap things up. Uh, before, you know, b- before we go away, I first of all want to thank Nir for coming on uh, the podcast and uh, having this wonderful chat. I-, I have to say, Nir, I was someone who leaned a lot more on uh, the side of, uh, to be very honest, where the Kristan Harris uh, thought comes from. And-, and believe me, after listening to your arguments, I have come up Come up a lot on the center on this issue. I was really worried, and uh, and uh, trust me. But, so when Anurag told me, Anurag was like, "You have to talk to Nir. Your thought, your mind will change." Because Kushal, I know you're an open-minded guy, and uh, you need to chat with Nir. And and I'm glad I had this chat with you. So Neer, thanks a lot for coming on the podcast. Oh,
1: that you know what you saying that just made my day. I so appreciate that. Thank you for having an open mind. Thank you for hearing uh, this 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 uh, other narrative out there. I'm so happy that uh, it, uh, it hopefully enhanced your. Your view of the world. And so thank you so much for
0: the opportunity to be with you and your audience. Oh, thanks a lot. Uh, all right, guys, you know the drill. Subscribe to the podcast, like, share the video. Uh, I've left Niamh's website address in the description of the podcast. So it doesn't matter if you check it out on YouTube or SoundCloud, Twitter, you know, all the platforms, you can go on the description, go and visit Niamh's website. You, sh- I highly insist you buy both the books because you will not understand the second book unless you under- uh, read the first book. So read Hooked, and indistractable you should also subscribe to his newsletter i think it's worth uh i'm definitely gonna do it and if you like what i'm doing here please become a member on youtube or you can go on patreon uh, i'll see you guys next time with another exciting guest until then namaste take care goodbye